HCQ is associated with an increased risk of death. We've not yet heard the end of the story. Hold on to your hats here for just a bit. I like that term, golden child. Give it to the sick, but not so sick, and withhold it from the overly sick. Okay, okay, I think I got it. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you're joining us for this podcast. Really looking forward to this podcast, specifically because we're going to focus on some very hot-off-the-press literature regarding COVID-19. Now, we all continue to confront this. We took a break for a few podcasts and focused on some other aspects of critical care emergency medicine and resuscitation. But due to some of these recent articles that have just been published, we felt it was very pertinent to bring us up to speed, up to date with what the literature is saying primarily on treatments of patients that are in the ICU with COVID-19 or are critically ill from COVID-19. And now that we've had pretty much a year worth of experience in treating these patients, we have a little bit more robust data pointing us in some directions regarding therapy for these patients. So before we get into that, as always, let me bring in my co-host here, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. John, how goes it this evening? Oh man, it's going good. Thanks for asking. I'm really enjoying this turn to the weather. We've had too much snow in the Northeast week on week on week. I know it's not a lot compared to other areas of the country, but I'm tired of it. I'm ready for some sunshine and some springtime. So I'm happy to see the thermometer temperatures slowly creeping up in the Northeast. Sounds good. Peter, how are things down in New Orleans? So the weather is beautiful at the moment, clear sunshine, temperatures in the 70s, and COVID numbers decreasing. So everything's looking really nice for spring here. Sounds good as well. And Rob, West Coast. Ditto out here. We're about to see a beautiful spring, and our COVID numbers are downtrending as well. So things are going well. And I think that's what most of us are seeing, a decrease in our overall COVID numbers from that January spike following the holiday. And as more and more and more of us receive the vaccination, the numbers are trending in a very favorable direction. And as you have all seen, we now have a third vaccine hitting the market with the Johnson & Johnson product. And so we certainly are hopeful that nearly every adult will be vaccinated come time with late spring, early summer. So having said that, we still have a few more weeks of seeing patients who are COVID positive, treating them. We are certainly not out of the woods yet. And I think it's very timely with a lot of these articles. And the main article we're going to focus on, John, I'm going to turn things to you, is published online. It just came out a few days ago. And this is in Critical Care Medicine, their Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Recall that about six months or so ago, we went over their first update and recommendations. They've now updated that. This is their update six months after that initial document now that we've got some more evidence and I think it provides some important recommendations. So without further ado, I'm going to turn things over to you. Lead us through this discussion. Absolutely, Mike. So I think as we all have become fairly accustomed to, the COVID-19 literature base continues to rapidly evolve. And part of that is due to a lot of rigorous study of some of the therapies that have started with rumor and went on to small study, followed by a large trial. And we're now seeing the fruits of people's labor. It's incredible a year out to see some of these publications and the accomplishments that we as an international critical care and scientific community have been able to 
complete. So kudos to all of you who have put in a lot of effort here to try and find some solutions to this really big problem. Uh, some of these trial groups include the Recovery Trial Group, the Remap Cap Trial Group, and the Siren Network, which all continue to guide our evidence-based approach to COVID-19 care, both in and outside the emergency department. So our goal today will be to review this first update, as you mentioned, Mike, who just published this update to their guidelines, which six months out is incredibly welcome. And, you know, they did a nice job. It's a narrative review, but it also includes a few random effects meta-analyses to summarize treatment effects when they were able to, which is nice to provide a more objective approach to this review and these guidelines. So while there are a number of recommendations, we'll really be paying attention to the ones that have changed over the past six months. So the recommendations were largely used as usual using a great approach to generate kind of an overall recommendation based on the balance between benefit and harm, resources and cost implications, equity and feasibility factors. So this will be a fun little summary and hopefully we'll just give you the meat of the matter and maybe start with a topic. In fact, you know, we've talked about all these topics in some piecemeal kind of way individually as they've come along, but this will be a nice update to all of them. So maybe we'll start with Peter. We talked about this idea of awake proning in patients in the emergency department who aren't intubated or potentially once they get into the ICU with high flow nasal cannula. What are some updates in terms of how surviving sepsis campaign is recommending the use of awake proning in these sick patients? You got it, John. So when we're talking about these are fully awake patients and it's been under investigation as an intervention with the thought process that it's going to increase drainage of secretions, it'll improve aeration to the lung, particularly in atelectatic lung bases, reducing VQ mismatch and decrease the need, hopefully, of invasive mechanical ventilation. So what's really the evidence? recommendation update using one systematic review, which incorporated 35 observational studies, 12 prospective cohort studies, 18 retrospective cohort studies, and five case reports in the ICU and non-ICU settings. All of these reports showed a transient improvement in oxygenation when the patients assumed the prone position but a large amount of uncertainty still remains about the clinical outcomes of these patients. There are seven ongoing clinical trials that are investigating this practice, but until those stronger results are in, this is the recommendation from surviving sepsis. They say that there is an insufficient evidence to issue a global recommendation on the use of awake-prone positioning in non-intubated adults with severe COVID-19. So you're left to do what you would like to do. Okay, that's awesome, Peter. So maybe some transient improvement and something we'd like to see, which is oxygenation, but certainly there's a lot of work left to be done here. So not a strong recommendation for the routine use of awake-prone positioning. Got it. Now, I think one of the golden children of therapies for COVID-19, corticosteroids, I'm going to turn to Rob. Tell us what Surviving Sepsis Campaign has done in terms of the recommendation of corticosteroid therapy. Yeah, John, I like that term, golden child. Corticosteroids are definitely a winner in all of this. The initial rationale for steroids in COVID-19 is that corticosteroids have the potential to reduce the severity of ARDS, reduce systemic inflammation, and decrease hypoxia that arises from pulmonary interstitial edema. 
And so the recommendation update is based on seven pretty strong randomized controlled trials, including the recovery trial that have been published over the past six months. And in these trials, three of them used dexamethasone, three used methylprednisolone. And the recommendations are that the use of corticosteroids reduces the risk of 28-day mortality in hypoxic patients with COVID-19 compared to no steroids or placebo. And this is a very strong recommendation. And a firm recommendation on the type of steroids, in other words, dexamethasone versus prednisolone, could not really be made until further trials are published. But the SSC, critical care medicine, prefers using the recovery trial regimen of dexamethasone, which was six milligrams per day for 10 days. As an aside, I would recommend considering perhaps a slightly higher dose in that dexamethasone in obese patients. And also, if you don't have dexamethasone, like it was not available at a period of time in a hospital that I was working in Texas, it's fine to go ahead and use methylprednisolone. That's awesome, Rob. Yeah, I've also encountered that where we had to make a substitute for dex. And as long as we're using a dex equivalent dosage of steroids using our handy steroid equivalency table, I think it's a great way to go. And it's funny because I remember when we first started talking about steroids and there was a lot of concern about prolonged viral shedding and the potential impact on mortality is actually patients doing worse from a Cochrane review not too long ago, now we've completely turned in the other direction and found a benefit in this subgroup of patients, particularly the critically ill hypoxic patients. So really cool to see that evidence come out. So I think the next big group that Surviving Sepsis Campaign touched upon, the absolute 180 degree reverse direction, which is hydroxychloroquine, which started out potentially as a golden child, but turned out to be a dud. So I think the rationale of using hydroxychloroquine in patients, particularly in COVID-19 patients, came from some in vitro studies that suggested chloroquine and HCQ may inhibit the SARS-CoV replication, but it looks like clinical trials have failed to demonstrate clinical benefit in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Now, in the first guideline, the surviving sepsis campaign was not able to issue a recommendation on HCQ use at that time. So since the first recommendation, they've identified five new randomized control trials that actually have met and been included in these recommendations. And the results of these trials found that HCQ did not reduce 28-day mortality or the need for mechanical ventilation, but increased the risk of adverse events. So an updated systematic review that included 26 RCTs, big and small, with over 10,000 patients in total showed HCQ was associated with an increased risk of death. So because of that new evidence, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has recommended that HCQ does not reduce the risk of death in these patient groups and may in fact cause harm and has now made a strong recommendation against the use of HCQ for these patients. So what was once thought maybe to help turned out not to be so true and that's the beauty of evidence-based medicine randomized control trials. So moving now to another interesting and kind of hot topic and conceptually makes sense, the use of convalescent plasma for COVID-19. Mike, what does Surviving Sepsis Campaign think about convalescent plasma? Thanks, John. Well, there's a number of things to actually think about, and let me just 
give us some background here. Throughout this pandemic, the last many, many months, we know that we've had patients with COVID-19 and many have actually gotten convalescent plasma. So in essence, we are delivering plasma to patients from persons who have recovered from COVID-19. So we're providing this passive immunity by transferring antibodies to currently infected patients. Recall that convalescent plasma was actually given an emergency use authorization here in the U.S. in August of 2020. And that was based on a lot of these prelim reports from early in the pandemic that suggested the treatment, well, well it was well tolerated and overall low risk of adverse events. However, the clinical benefits quite honestly, remain uncertain. So if we talk specifically about the SSC update here, they found four new RCTs that have been published since the last time of their update looking at convalescent plasma. This included the PLACID trial, which had, recall, over 450 non-critical but hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So the SSC did a meta-analysis on these four RCTs, and at the end of the day, they found that really convalescent plasma did not reduce hospital mortality compared to those that were receiving usual care. So what are their overall recommendations on convalescent plasma? In essence, they state there appears to be a lack of benefit toward improved outcomes with increased cost, and as a result, they really issue a recommendation against the use of convalescent plasma in patients with severe or critical COVID-19. Also worth noting that the SIREN network, you mentioned this in the background, John, also recently performed an interim analysis of its C3PO trial from 47 EDs across the U.S. and found that convalescent plasma similarly did not benefit patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. Didn't have a lot of harm, but there wasn't much benefit. Now, taking a little bit of a detour from this SSC update, I also want to bring in a publication that was also published really, I think the same day or within a few days of this SSC update in JAMA, and that was an association of convalescent plasma treatment with clinical outcomes in patients with COVID-19. So this is online ahead of print in JAMA, and in essence, they were performing their own systematic review and meta-analysis of all published RCTs that looked at convalescent plasma in patients with COVID-19. So this was strictly focused on RCTs. They included 10 RCTs, and the recovery trial made up about 90 to 92% of the patients. And also at the end of the day, these authors found no significant association with a decrease in all-cause mortality or any other benefit in clinical outcomes in patients who received convalescent plasma compared with either placebo in combination with standard care or standard care alone. So really falling out of favor, John, in terms of convalescent plasma. Mike, that's incredible. You just summarized surviving sepsis campaign and are also bringing these results from a trial that they weren't even able to include yet published within the past couple of days. I love you guys, man. It's awesome. So Peter, talk to us a little about remdesivir. We use remdesivir at University of Pennsylvania, and I know it's being incorporated into protocols across the country in different hospitals. What are surviving sepsis campaigns recommendations for the use of remdesivir? Yeah, when we look at remdesivir, just a reminder that it's really a pro-drug. What it actually does is inhibit replication of coronavirus during in vitro studies. And so it's been used pretty well across the country. Well, what's the evidence, really? So there's four randomized control trials that have been published that examine the efficacy and safety of remdesivir. 
in the treatment of COVID-19. Now, there's the ACT-1 trial, which randomized over 1,000 hospitalized adults within 72 hours of positive testing and found an increased time to recovery with the use of remdesivir, leading to a reduced hospital stay and decreased need for invasive mechanical ventilation. Then we have remdesivir did not reduce the risk of death at 28 days in the solidarity trial, which included over 2,750 hospitalized adults with COVID-19. And so I think it's tough to understand that. And then a recently updated meta-analysis of over 7,500 patients also found that remdesivir did not reduce 28-day mortality. So let's get into the surviving sepsis recommendations, and they're mixed. So hold on to your hats here for just a bit. There is a weak recommendation in favor of the use of IV remdesivir that should be here it is, ideally started within 72 hours of admission in patients with severe COVID-19 who do not require mechanical ventilation. Got it? So go ahead and use it, write it, deliver it in favor of those people who are sick with COVID-19, but not so sick that they're already intubated. And then they have a weak recommendation against the use of IV remdesivir in patients with the most severe COVID-19 who, again, require mechanical ventilation. So give it to the sick, but not so sick, and withhold it from the overly sick. Okay, okay. I think I got it. So give it to the patients who do not require mechanical ventilation, but don't give it to the sick people who do require a ventilator. Do I got that right? You got it. All right. Okay. Got it. Whew. All right. Moving along, anticoagulation. Yeah, definitely seeing a good number of DBTs and BTE in patients with COVID-19. I know that the pathophysiology is even a little more extensive than that. But Rob, maybe you can go through a little bit about what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign thinks about anticoagulation. What should we be doing? Should we be doing prophylactic dose, intermediate dose, systemic anticoagulation, what should we be doing? Yeah, John, so I want to thank you for giving me the two winners in this review. Your check is in the mail. And so the rationale for anticoagulation therapy is that a lot of studies have shown an increase in incidence of endothelial injury, microvascular thrombosis, and a high rate of thromboembolic disease in hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19. And so the evidence is that in their systematic review and meta-analysis of four randomized controlled trials that compared chemical-involved disease prophylaxis versus no prophylaxis, found that there was a reduced risk of DVT and PE with the use of chemical anticoagulant therapy. So the SSC recommendation is a strong recommendation to use pharmacologic VTE prophylaxis in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. It's worth noting, though it's not discussed in these guidelines, that there are two recent large RCTs produced by the REMAP-CAP group and the ACTIVE-4 trial groups that published their data recently and found that therapeutic anticoagulation did not reduce mortality in critically ill adults with COVID-19 but did decrease the need for invasive mechanical ventilation and organ failure in non-critically ill patients. 
So it, it'll be interesting to see if these results uh, affect the strength of the next go round of these SSC recommendations. But overall, the recommendation is in favor of using pharmacological BTE prophylaxis. And the dosing of that is not too much evidence about how it should be dosed. But in my practice, I'm using sort of BID dosing, non like sort of 30 BID type dosing for most of my patients. Awesome, Rob. Yeah, thanks. I think we're also using heparin or low molecular weight heparin in patients with normal renal function. And it is interesting with these follow-up trials to see what will happen. So it sounds like systemic anticoagulation may, like you said, prevent progression of organ failure, but maybe doesn't help the patients who are already super sick. But we should at least be doing something and providing some pharmacologic therapy. So that's awesome. Perfect, perfect summary, Rob. And I will be waiting anxiously by the mailbox for that check. Now, not included in this guideline update is a discussion about a new and interesting kind of novel therapeutic challenge or medication, which are the IL-6 antagonists. I think the trade name being tocilizumab. There have been two trials that have come out recently looking at the use of TOSI in COVID-19. And Mike, maybe you could just touch upon that briefly. You know, I don't know we go into detail, but certainly worth a mention here. Thanks, John. I think you're exactly right. If we're given an update here, we'd be remiss not to include these two studies that were just published literally in the last week online with the New England Journal of Medicine on IL-6 antagonists. And the punchline is they actually provide conflicting results. So I don't know that we're going to be able to give any firm recommendations, and it's something we probably need to dive deeper into in an upcoming podcast. But first was the ROSIS trial in New England Journal of Medicine titled Tocilizumab in Hospitalized Patients with Severe COVID Pneumonia. Now, where does this really come from? Recall that as COVID-19 begins, that initial phase of high viral replication, it's thought that that's followed by this secondary phase of just an overwhelming immune response. And that progression can lead to or has evidence of just a marked increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines perhaps an uncontrolled inflammatory response, thereby leading to ARDS and multi-organ failure. We do know that levels of IL-6 do correlate with COVID-19 severity, and we also know that interleukin-6 promotes endothelial dysfunction and may promote the development of vascular permeability, thereby playing a role in vascular dysfunction and lung injury in patients with COVID-19. Now, tocilizumab, recall that that is a monoclonal antibody against the IL-6 receptor alpha, that's been used prior to COVID to treat a number of inflammatory diseases. And where all of this comes from is a few case reports and retrospective studies that have demonstrated rapid reduction in fever, use of oxygen and mechanical ventilation, and a reduced amount of lung manifestations of COVID-19. So this ROSIS trial was really to assess the efficacy and safety of tocilizumab in hospitalized patients with severe COVID pneumonia. It was an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in a little over 60 hospitals in nine countries in Europe and North America. Now, it's important, this and the other trial included adult patients in the ICU with severe COVID pneumonia. And for this trial, pulse oximetry readings of 93% or lower, or that P to F ratio less than 300. 
and in essence they were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to get tocilizumab or placebo and they overall looked at clinical status at day 28. So both of these trials, this ROSIS trial and then the REMAP-CAP trial, looked at ordinal outcomes or clinical status using this ordinal scale, which they determined in the ROSIS trial anywhere from one ready for discharge all the way up to seven for death. They had a little over 450 patients that they were randomized, 438 in their modified intention to treat analysis. And the take-home message is at the end of the day, there was not any statistical significant difference in clinical status as measured by that ordinal scale in patients who received tocilizumab versus those who were randomized to placebo at day 28. In addition, there was no mortality benefit associated with the use of tocilizumab. Now, flipping over to the REMAP-CAP study, this was also published, it may even been in the same online issue of New England Journal, providing conflicting results in the REMAP-CAP trial looking at interleukin-6 receptor antagonists in critically ill patients with COVID-19. This was and is actually still an ongoing international multifactorial adaptive platform trial. Adult patients, critically ill patients who within 24 hours after starting organ support in the ICU were randomized to receive either tocilizumab or standard care or serilumab, another IL-6 receptor antagonist. And they overall in the REMAP-CAP portion looked at a primary outcome of respiratory and cardiovascular support free days using an ordinal scale combining in-hospital death and days free of organ support up to day 21. In essence, they published this because tocilizumab and serlumab met their predefined criteria for efficacy. So they had a little over 350 patients who got tocilizumab, about 50 that got serlumab, and then 402 to control. And at the end of the day, they did find that in patients that received these interleukin-6 receptor antagonists actually had improved outcomes, including survival and decreased receipt of organ support. So two big studies just published in the past week with conflicting data on IL-6 receptor antagonists. So we've not yet heard the end of the story, I think, on these medications for use in critically ill patients with COVID-19. Oh, Mike, that was an incredible summary of two really interesting trials. And I think that for all the stat ner- statistics nerds out there, I put myself in that box, I think the one interesting thing about the REMAP-CAP trial is they used a Bayesian approach to their statistics, as opposed to the ROSIS trial, which used a frequentist P. So maybe the Bayesian people who are saying, this is, this is more effective, C, and then the tr- more traditional s- statisticians pointing to the ROSIS trial. Anyways, still up in the air, probably not enough evidence to make a strong recommendation either way, but it's exciting to see a potentially new therapy that could be effective at reducing COVID-19 mortality in these really sick patients. So, you know, kind of wrap it up. This was an awesome, awesome summary. Thank you guys for, you know, really hitting the most important things that we can do and initiate a lot of these therapies directly in the emergency department. I think it all ascribes to what we believe, which are early and effective interventions really will change the trajectory of our critically ill patients. So thank you for that. But we'll certainly keep on top of this and monitor for changes and new updates, both exciting and dull, and we'll definitely are excited to bring it to our audience. So thank you all.
Thanks, John. Outstanding job leading us through that discussion. Please let us know if you have any questions. We will link to, as we normally do, these studies in New England Journal, in JAMA, as well as the SSC update that was published online in Critical Care Medicine. We'll put all of that in our show notes, so please take a look at that for the highlights. Thanks so much for listening to us here on CCPEM for this COVID update here in March of 2021. We will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.